0: All right, well, uh, let's take our Bibles out now. We're going to turn to the book of Exodus and chapter 20. It says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, that's an important starting point, and We kind of recognized it last week. If you look back into chapter 19, verse 4, He makes a very similar statement there. And He's he's just pointing out a fact to us. That about what He's about to give us comes from the same person that had just delivered us. Right as he's writing to Israel, he's saying, look, I'm the same God that just delivered you in a mighty way, that has already redeemed you, has already saved you out from the, among the Egyptians and brought you out here to be with me. And now I'm going to give you... You know what it makes me think of? It makes me think of parenting. Because how many times as parents do we get in kind of a head-butting session with our kids, and we got our motives for where we're at, and our kids have the motives that, that they think that we have, and sucking all the fun out of their life at the moment, and that kind of thing. And, and what God is doing here is He's saying, look, let's just start with who we are here. I'm the one that has delivered you. I'm the one who loves you enough to save you out from underneath the bondage. And you know what, I found that to be the case not only in my life with my kids, but in helping other families and stuff too. I remember sitting down with a family one time and I said I asked the the teenager that was having a bit of a struggle, I said, What are your goals for your life? In ten years, what do you want your life to look like? And they're like, What? I said, No, think about it, ten years. Do you want to have do you want to be married by then? Do you, do you want to have any kids? Do you want to have a job? What kind of job? Do you want to have a house? Where are you going to live? Where do you picture yourself living? What do you picture yourself driving? What do you and just asked them all those things and they kind of told me what they wanted their life to look like. Then I asked the parents. What do you want your kid's life to look like in 10 years? You know, they're remarkably similar. Believe it or not, the good things that the kid wants in their life are a lot of the same good things that the parent wants in their life. And then I just pointed out to the child, I said, you know what the difference between you and them is? that They know how to get you to that point. You're just starting out. You're new at this. If you learn from them, you'll get there easier than if you try it on your own. All of a sudden, the kid realizes, hey, my parents have a lot of the same goals and the good for me that I have for me. And that's what God's doing here. He's saying, look, I'm the one that's delivered you out of Egypt. I'm the one that brought you out with a strong hand. I'm the one that that loved you enough to go to the trouble. I'm the one that took down a world empire on your behalf. And that's a strong argument for God. In fact, we find that that wording used 125 times through the Bible is God reminds these people regularly who He is and what He's done for them. That He is actually on their side. I can remember times with my kids where I told them, look, I'm on your side. In fact, I'm more on your side than you are on your side right now. And I remember my parents telling me the same thing (laughs) because the things that I was doing were really not the right kind of actions that would lead to what I eventually wanted for my life. And, so, and that's what God's doing. So the basis of this whole giving of the law is God coming alongside them and saying, Look, I, I'm that one. I'm the God who created you, formed you into a nation, delivered you out from the nation of Egypt. And then he says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath uh, that's exactly what they are. They are the Ten Commandments. They're not the Ten Suggestions. They're not the Ten Tips. Well, as we consider it this morning, the first of the Ten Commandments is you will have no other gods before Me. Our God is the only true God. The Bible makes that very clear throughout it. And so anything else is actually made by us instead of worshiping the God that created us. And what is He asking for? He's not asking for anything different than what you would expect. You know, the probably the closest earthly experience that we have of what God is asking for right here is we find it in marriage. In fact that's why marriage is so sacred, because it is a reflection of God's character, of God's nature, and He built us in His image and He is a covenant making, a covenant keeping God. And that's what marriage is. It's a covenant where two people come together and say, we're no longer two, we are one. I'm making these promises to you, you're making these promises to me, Till death do us part, and we are keeping these promises. That's exactly the image that we get of God. In fact, God describes it that way through both the Old and the New Testaments. You know, when we we look at it, we say, well, what do I want from my spouse? What do I want, ladies, from your husband? Men from your wife? Young people from your future spouse? Uh, You want them. And you want all of them. And you want them to want all of you. This is something that will be exclusive. It's right in the vows. Keeping yourself only unto Him. Keeping yourself only unto her. As the Bible says, the two shall become one. And that's what we expect. When another individual enters into that relationship, it destroys lives. It upends our existence as we struggle through those times. And it happens in our sinful world. But it's a tragedy. And it's hard. God looks at His relationship with us, with Him as our God, and us serving Him as a marriage relationship all the way through both Testaments. He describes it that way. I remember somebody making the statement to me. He said, well, would you rather that they're sitting out in the boat if they're out on the lake thinking about God, or would you they rather they're in the church thinking about fishing? What do you think? <laughs> That's right. In the church thinking about God. You see, the question is really a non-starter. It's, a, it's going nowhere. It, it, it presupposes those are the only two options. And, and, and we're going to just give that to God and say, well, God should be happy with me sitting out on the lake thinking about Him. And I gotta admit, I think about him, I think, every time I'm on the lake, because how can you not? It's so beautiful out there, and it's, it's awesome, and I, I worship every time I'm out there. But he also commanded me to come and assemble, and to worship with other believers, and to be an encouragement to one another, and so I'm not gonna give this up for that. I can do that other times. Let's just reverse the roles here a little bit. Let's say that this question is being asked of your life. We're gonna interject something. You got your relationship with your husband, and we're gonna interject another woman. And then we're going to ask the same question. Would you rather He's with her thinking about you or with you thinking about her? Neither! You see, that's, that's exactly how God feels about us. I want her with me thinking about me, and I want her to feel the same way about me, or it's not right. And God is in the place. He is the only God. He is the Creator. He is the Deliverer this. And He is the Sustainer. And He is God. And how He feels about us is the same way. He doesn't want other things vying for our affections. In fact, it's really kind of interesting when you think about this, about the Ten Commandments, as they kind of begin and end in the same place. Because He starts off saying, you'll have no other gods before Me. And He ends with saying, you will not covet Anybody else's things. And the Bible tells us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5, put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. When we get our hearts' desires so, so set on other things that they trump God in our life, it actually is a form of idolatry. You're all going to worship something. It's either going to be the real God or a fake God but we are designed to worship. And God says, it needs to be just me. God told them, you have no other gods before me, but Israel fell into idolatry. And they found themselves worshiping the gods of the peoples around them. And when God dealt with that, He called it adultery. He didn't just call it idolatry. He called it adultery. Why? Because adultery showed how God saw them as His people. And how he felt going through that experience. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 9 and 10, it says, Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Now, what is that referring to? Stone and tree, those are the things that you make, build your altars out of, and that you carve into images of these different gods that you would worship. And so God says she committed adultery, talking about the nation of Israel, she committed adultery with stone and tree. She took the elements that she had available and carved them into other gods and worshipped other gods. And God says, I see her as my wife. And she is being unfaithful in going to another god. It says in verse 10, Yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to Me with her whole heart, but in pretense, declares the Lord. And so what He means by that is Judah saw what happened to Israel. You'd think she would have repented. God said, but she only did it in words. There was a pretense there. There was a show of coming back to God. His point was, your heart's not in it. This is a show, but you're worshiping these other gods. I'm not happy with this. Just like you would be if if your husband or your wife was involved in somebody else, but yet they're coming home to you and telling you how much they love you and want to sit down to dinner and all that stuff. No, this is not right. That's what Judah was like. Judah gave God a lip service, but their heart was still other places. And then a couple chapters later, in chapter 5, verse 7, it says, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken Me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and troop to the house of whores. When we get to the New Testament, we see the same kind of a language used, but we see a little bit difference in the idols. Even though the Gentile world had lots of idols, so they had lots of gods that they carved and that they worshipped in that way, but in the book of James chapter 4, he recognized that it goes deeper than just the worship of other idols. In James chapter 4, now he's not writing to Israel, he's writing to the church. And he says, "...you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says, "...he yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us." He yearns jealously over that Spirit that He has made to dwell within us." It's not talking about the Holy Spirit there. It's talking about our spirit, our human spirit that God has given to us. We are, we are, whether we're saved or not, we every one of us has a body and a spirit. An immaterial part and a material part. And God says that immaterial part that He's put within you, He is jealous for the affection of what is in you. In other words, He wants your heart to be for Him. But you know what? We get caught up in the things of the world, and we chase the things of the world, and those become more important to us. But we've had it a little bit during this coronavirus because we've had a struggle about gathering together. And I still think that if you're vulnerable, that maybe you should maybe you should be home. Some people should be home, and depending on where you're at. now in our county, we don't have a lot of cases of it yet, so i don't I don't think it's overly dangerous. but you know we need to be careful. But at the same time, you know what happened? Our whole nation had to walk through our priorities what's essential well food's essential and that is more immediately essential absolutely and so places got to stay open like the grocery store and Walmart that's important well what about hardware stores got to stay open liquor stores got to stay open and when you're, when you're doing that kind of thing and you're saying, this one gets to stay open, that one doesn't, or this one gets to open to this many people, this one can be more, you're setting priorities. You're saying, look, this one's more important, this one's essential, this one not, not so much. But the point is, and we found some digital ways to get around it, to do it while we had to, or while we felt it was careful or, or maybe needed, but worship is essential. Worship is important. This is supposed to be the core of who we are. So the first one is no, no other gods. God says, I'm not going to share you. I love you too much to share you. The second one is no images. Very closely linked together. Deuteronomy points out the reason for that. Deuteronomy chapter 4 says, "...therefore watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire." Beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is under the water, or in the water, under the earth, And beware, lest you raise your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun and the moon and the stars and all the hosts of the heaven, you be drawn away and bow down to them and serve them, things that the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven. And so exactly what we have seen throughout time and across the world, that idolatry that God commanded us not to do is exactly what the world has done. In Isaiah, he corrects Israel for doing exactly what he had told them not to. And he just points to the folly of fashioning something and carving the ears in something that cannot hear. No matter what image you carve a piece of wood into, it is still a block of wood. And that's what God is trying to get through to them with Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 44, it says, "...He cuts down cedars and He chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes the bread. And He makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it He burns in the fire." Over the half, he eats his meat, he roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm, I have seen the fire. And the rest of it, he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. A couple verses later, he says, No one considers... Nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it into an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? The guy cuts down a tree. What does he do? Well, first thing he does takes care of his essentials. Right? Back to that. He he takes it and he uses it to heat his house. And he takes it and uses it to cook his food on. And that kind of thing. And then he says, with what's left over... He makes a god and he bows down and worships. And he's just saying, what made that second half of the wood any different from the first half of the wood that all he did was heat your house and cook your food on it? It's just a block of wood. And you know what? We can do the same thing. When we get up and we start coveting different things or we start following the world's, world's things, we fall for things that are just as foolish. We worship possessions and we worship wealth and we worship prestige. and we worship. There's a whole host of things that aren't much better than a block of wood that we end up worshiping as well. Now, as we look at this, he gives uh, some stiff warning with this about making these images. He says, You shall not bow down to them in verse 5 or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Remember, we touched on that a little bit with James. God acknowledges that he's a jealous God. This, doesn't, uh, this isn't the jealousy that we usually try to stay away from. The jealousy that we try to stay away from is probably best equated with envy. I wish I was like them. I wish I was. That's not it. God is saying, look, I am entitled to an exclusive relationship with you. And if I don't get that, I am disturbed by it. I'm jealous over it. That's a proper jealousy. If I'm jealous because I want to be like Lambert, that's an improper jealousy. But if something gets in the way between my and my wife's relationship, I'll guarantee I'm going to be jealous. That's a proper jealousy. Why? Because I have, we have a covenant. I have an exclusive right to a relationship with her, a oneness with her that nobody else has any business in. You know, back in April, we had a anniversary. And we did something a little bit special for our anniversary. And uh, later on the week, I was talking to my mom, and she said, well, what is your week like? And I said, well, we went here for our anniversary. And she said, oh, I forgot your anniversary. I'm so sorry. I said, that's okay. You weren't invited. (laughs) Because that's 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 her and I. That's us. That's ours. Nobody else is in that. That's just us. And that's the way God is with us. He's jealous with us. He's like no other gods. Nobody else. Nobody else's business. This is just us. He has that jealousy for us. But then notice what he says. Because he's a jealous God, it gets visible. I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate Me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love Me and keep My commandments. It's a little bit confusing here as to exactly what He's saying. Now, what I don't think He's saying there, because if you follow the rest of it, it says that He is blessing those who love Him uh, and He is uh, cursing those who hate Him. And so... It's not saying that if you hate God, God's going to beat up your children for it. In fact, later on in the law, he gives a command absolutely to not do that. says the children should not pay for the crimes and iniquities or the sins of their fathers. You paid for your own sins. I think that he is talking about the influence that parents have upon their children. If a parent does not train their child up like the Bible tells us in the nurture and admonition of the Lord then that child is not going to grow up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So is most likely not going to be following God. He's not going to love God. And that is generational. Parents that don't have a relationship with God typically have children who don't have a relationship with God who have children who don't have a relationship with God who have... you get the point. But the same we also find to be true. Parents who love God typically have children who grow up to them. There might be some wandering here or there or whatever, but they end up they love God. It's not, a, it's not a blanket statement that happens perfectly every time or just follows that exact suit, but typically that's what we find. God is saying, you've got a responsibility to your children to do your best to bring them up in that nurture and admonition of the Lord because God's a jealous God. And if they choose to go against Him, then it's not pretty. They will be underneath the wrath of God. Now, if we follow the history of the nation of Israel or even the history of the world, if you think about it, at, at least two points in our history everybody has known God. Right? When Adam and Eve were created and then kicked out of the garden and had their family, you know, at some point in the world there, everybody knew who the true God was. And then when God destroyed the world and started over with Noah, again, you had one family on the earth and that family knew who God was. But for some reason, it doesn't take very long, very many generations before you have a whole host of people that have completely forgotten about who God is. We see the same thing later in Israel's history. During the time of Joshua, it says this in Judges chapter 2, verse 7. It says, "...and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done." So all during the days of Joshua, the, the Israel Was doing all right. Well, in Judges chapter 2 and verse 10, it says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. In other words, all of Joshua's generation died, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. This whole next generation that comes up after them didn't know God. Why? Was it because parents weren't teaching? Was it because kids weren't listening? I don't know. The baton that was supposed to be handed off did not get handed off. And it's probably some of both. It's probably some of the parents that weren't teaching and some of the kids that weren't listening. And boy, it had to happen a big thing to happen in one generation. But one generation is obviously all it takes. I was over here reading last night through some files. I pulled out some old annual meeting books from our church. And I was reading through like the mid-60s. I looked at the membership. The membership was about what it is now. It's around sixty. But there was a part in their annual report, and it was on Sunday school attendance. In like 1965, the average weekly Sunday school attendance in our church was 88. 88. That, that was awesome. I read it the next year, and the average was 78, and they were getting concerned. But recognizing that a big part of the reason it went from 88 to 78 is they lost two large families, moved out of the area that year, which probably made the difference. You know, we're not anywhere near any of those. In our Sunday school attendance. Sunday school is a great program for training our kids. We're not even having it right now due to the virus, but we will be again soon. It's a great program for giving, giving our kids the fundamentals of the faith and for us to be reminded of it and learn from it as well. And we don't have anywhere near that kind of a showing. But I also look, and, and now what, what are the reasons for that? Well, maybe it's just not a big enough priority for us. I think also part of it is our families are smaller than they used to be back at that time. I think that's impacted it some. I think that there's a variety of reasons of why the numbers are where they are. But at the same time, I don't think we're taking full advantage of that program. And you know what the sad thing is, is that you can kind of see from the very beginning of Sunday school movement, not just in our church, but all over the country, the Sunday school movement started out as an evangelistic outreach because the Christian parents were training their children at home. And so this was meant to reach out to kids that did not have Christian parents at home that would train them in the ways of God. But then it kind of went through a shift where it went from being an evangelistic arm of the church to being a Christian education arm of the church. And so now it wasn't so much to reach out to the other people's kids, although that was still included, but this program was also became this is where the church is going to train its young people. As parents, we kind of let our guard down. Say, well, I'm sending them to Sunday school. They're getting it there. We're going to church. We're getting it there. You know what? That should not be replacing our... What did God tell us in Deuteronomy? When you rise up, when you sit down, when you walk along the way, when you lie down at night, you would be teaching the principles of God to your children all the time. A lot of our Christian parents started kind of dropping off their responsibility, feeling like they were meeting it if they just got their kids into Sunday school. And I think then now in our country, not just our church, but in our country, now we're not even getting them to Sunday school. God said, if you take your faith in me lightheartedly... Your children are going to take it lightheartedly. It's not going to be just you that pays the price. It's going to be your children that pay it after you. And your grandchildren are going to pay it also. Then let's look also, do not use God's name in vain. The word vain means empty or without a cause. It means to use God's name in a lighthearted way. Do you know uh, the old scribes and stuff when they used to be copying the Scriptures down when they would hit the name of God, they had a different pen that they would use to write the name of God with? The carefulness that they were taking with the name of God. Why? Because your name represents who you are. And so we're to be careful with the name of God. And he gives another qualifier here too. He says He will not hold them guiltless who use His name in vain. God takes it very seriously. When we use His name in vain, I remember talking to my dad one time in a lighthearted way. Not that I couldn't be lighthearted with my dad, I could on different things, and we could joke around and stuff. But I remember I talked to him in a way one time that was, well, let's just say, it was less than showing him the respect and the honor that he deserved as my father. And I remember when he did, he stopped, I did. He stopped me short, and he said, "Hey, wait a minute. You don't. Talk, you don't talk to me like that. I'm your father." And that's what God says. It is important to Him how you refer to him isn't it amazing that that word has been made a curse word people will use the name of Jesus Christ people will use the title for God the name for God in a in a cursing way or in a in a light way who else do they do that to they don't do it to Allah i've never heard another religious leader be used in that kind of way i've uh, people don't cuss by saying buddha or Hare krishna or anything like that. Hinduism has like a million gods, and uh, you're probably like me, you don't know the name of a one of them. Why? Why aren't those common curse words within our society? His name is the only one that is used in a way that He's commanded us not to use it. I think it's because there's a power of darkness that's out there that could care less if you use... Allah's name in vain. He could care less if you use a Hindu's and name in vain. and He could care less if you use Buddha's or Hare Krishna's or anybody else's name in vain. But He wants you to use God's name in vain. In Psalm 139, verse 20, it says, They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. That's the way God sees it. He says, My enemy is who takes my name in vain. I know it's common, and it's... Even popular. I remember well, I used God's name in vain one time when I was a kid. I did it on purpose because other kids were saying it, and it seemed like kind of like the the curse word that you got away with, the one that you, the one that your parents didn't come down on you for, the one that didn't really seem to matter so much. And I used it in front of my mom, and I was not like the rest of the kids. <laughs> my mom came down on me for it. What did you say? No, no, you don't. And, and I'm thankful because she made me think of it. Because as I went up into my teenage years and stuff, there were—I admit—my language was not great. But you know what? There's one word I would not use, and that was God's name. All of a sudden, the rest of them seemed like the one you could get away with. The rest of the swear words out there, but this is the one, and that's exactly what God's saying right here: I will not hold them guiltless who takes my name in vain. You see, the one I thought you could get away with was actually the only one that you couldn't. So we need to honor God and we honor Him by having Him be our God alone. We don't make images. God is spirit. Those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And we honor Him as we glorify His name.